listening to Footprints on Our Hearts, a podcast about baby loss, legacy, and learning to live again with me, Alison Ingleby. The baby loss community is one that no one wants to join, but together we can break the silence around baby loss and help each other navigate the rocky road that is grief, because all children leave footprints on our hearts. Hello and welcome to Footprints on Our Hearts. It feels a little bit odd to be recording this given everything that's going on in the world, but I feel like in these dark and scary times, it's helpful to have a little bit of consistency and continuity. And as far as I'm able, the podcast will carry on going out weekly as long as I've got people to talk to, come pandemic or no pandemic. So today I have an interview with Sarah Playle. We talk about the challenges she faced during all her pregnancies, and in particular, her twin daughters, Isla and Rosie, who were born at just 25 weeks and three days gestation. And Isla survived after spending a long time in NICU, but sadly, Rosie was still born. And after we finished recording the podcast, Sarah mentioned a book to me that she'd found useful when talking to Isla and her siblings about Rosie. It's called Sam and Finn. It's by Kate Polly. And in addition to the original version, you can also get various personalised versions of the story. And I'll include links to both of those in the show notes. Um, Sarah said it was a really helpful resource for her to talk about Rosie with Isla. I also owe you guys an apology, or some of you anyway, um, for all the messages I have missed on Instagram after asking people to message me and say what they thought of the show and to recommend um, various guests for the show. I then promptly failed to notice that I had um, a number of messages from people who'd messaged me on Instagram, but who I wasn't directly connected with. Um, So I really apologise for not getting back to your messages sooner. I want to say a huge thank you to Lucy for notifying me that I was not replying to her messages. And um, I do know what I'm doing with Instagram now. So I promise if you do message me in future, I will be better at picking things up. I don't necessarily check it every day or might not respond immediately, just because um, I find social media is one of those things that can sometimes feel a bit hard or a bit tough if I'm having a bad mental health day. So sometimes I just need to take a bit of a step away. But I will be looking out for message requests from now on. So please do message me. And thank you to everyone who has messaged or commented on one of my posts to say how much you enjoy and appreciate the podcast. Podcasting can feel a little bit lonely sometimes, like you're just talking into space. So it's good to know that there are people out there listening. This weekend marks another milestone in the baby loss year, Mother's Day. And it's a bit of an odd one this year as, I mean, it's my first kind of Mother's Day as a bereaved mother. So I guess it's it's new and odd for me. But I think for many people, it's going to be an odd Mother's Day as those even outside the baby loss community won't be having the Mother's Day they had imagined due to the impacts of coronavirus. But for those of us who've lost a child or perhaps lost a mother, it's a really tough day and will perhaps be even tougher if you're feeling more isolated, more alone with your thoughts than usual. And it does feel a bit like the world has gone crazy in the past week. Um, 
I write dystopian and post-apocalyptic fiction, and I spent many years planning specifically for pandemics, and yet it still feels really surreal, this situation we're in. But I think if there's one thing that I've taken from my years of studying emergencies and disasters, it's the ability of people to come together in a crisis. Yes, we see stories of panic buying, of elderly people being pushed aside, But if you look closer, there are far more stories of people going out of their way to help others and of communities supporting each other through adversity. We talk of the baby loss community as a community, and it is. We may not live close enough to each other physically to be able to pop around for a hug and a cup of tea, but we're still a community and we can still support each other through whatever the world decides to throw at us over the next weeks. And if I can help you get through this in any way, my message box is always open. Now I have finally learned how to use it. (laughs) And you can get in touch with me on Instagram, on Twitter, which I go on occasionally. And um, you can email me. Um, My email address is alison at footprintsonourhearts.com. And please, if you are struggling, and I'm sure many of us will be, if not now, then over the next few days, weeks, months, please do reach out to your friends, whether they be friends in real life, friends on Instagram, or just other people in the baby loss community, because we do need to stand together and look after each other at this time. And to quote from my favourite musical, Les Miserables, even the darkest night will end and the sun will rise. So I think it's good to share the good news stories at this time, as well as the bad news stories, because we all need a bit of positivity in our lives. And if you are a reader, an avid reader, and looking for some distraction from the real world in the coming days and weeks, um, I've pulled together a selection of books, mainly sci-fi and fantasy books, because that's what my readers enjoy, which are all free to download um, at the time the podcast goes out and probably for at least a few days or a week or two afterwards. So that might give you a few ideas for new books, new authors to to follow and read and hopefully a bit of distraction. Um, And if you do want to read a pandemic story that has a happy ending, my fantasy novella, The Fairy Flag, is one of those free books and will be free until Sunday. And I will put a link in the show notes to where you can find those books. Right, let's get on with this week's podcast. Welcome to Footprints on Our Hearts. On today's episode, I'm joined on the podcast by Sarah Playl. Sarah has three living children, Indy, Isla and Felix, as well as Rosie, Isla's twin, who was stillborn in... 2007 or 2008. It was around New Year, wasn't it? it (laughs) I'm not quite sure, but we will get onto that. Um, So welcome to the podcast, Sarah. And I wanted to start by asking you to paint a picture of what your life was like before you and your husband started to think about having children. Do you know what? I was looking at our wedding photos the other day, and it made me feel quite emotional because actually, before we decided to start having babies, we were effectively living pretty charmed lives, really. You know, we both had great jobs. We both worked in the city. We were very, lots of holidays, no worries, no financial worries, anything like that. Um, yeah, so we had we had a great life actually, um, and yeah, no, no nothing to worry about, no problems. Yeah, so that was all <laughs> before. <laughs> 
there's always a life before and a Absolutely. life after, isn't there? And how did you see your life with children? What was your kind of vision of your dream family and life? Uh, I wanted to have two children, boy and a girl, because obviously it's, all these things are very easy to accomplish, aren't they? <laughs> a boy first, then a girl, and then we were going to stop and carry on with our charmed lives. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's fascinating looking back, isn't it? That kind of almost naivety of of life before loss and and for us even when things started to go wrong I still actually always believed that it it somehow would come good because I was living in that lovely bubble where bad things didn't happen to me so you know even when all the evidence pointed to the contrary I still believed everything was going to be fine which I think is perhaps I don't know perhaps might be a helpful attitude given what you've gone through you know you needed something to keep you going through all of that (laughs) so when did you first start to think about getting pregnant um I was 29 when we got married and we had a couple of years of just you know being newlyweds and and it was quite soon I was probably about 31 32 and we started thinking actually we may as well get going and what happened with that first pregnancy so first pregnancy we got pregnant really easily um indecently quickly some might say (laughs) and um no problems and I was very excited we were both very excited and I went out for dinner I remember it really vividly I went out for dinner with a friend and someone was smoking at a table near us and she said oh I'm going to tell them to stop because you're pregnant and I said I just suddenly had this feeling and I looked at her and I went actually I don't think I am anymore and and actually I turned out it turned out to be right and I had a missed miscarriage at about 11 weeks gosh and I guess so was there anything in particular that made you feel no. like Cause that sounds like quite a it's quite a a sure statement to come out with and particularly want to I guess to vocalize and say to someone rather than just having this sort of nagging doubt at the back of your head it was really weird I was absolutely in that moment I suddenly was just absolutely certain that I was no longer pregnant and I went for an early scan and and I wasn't but it was weird because I hadn't had any bleeding or no reason to think that apart from this sudden gut feeling that actually not anymore and I was right yeah and how did that make you feel? Because you've kind of had this charmed life, sort of charmed pregnancy, got pregnant straight away, and then everything going wrong, and then suddenly it, it ends. Yeah, and at the time, I thought that was the worst thing that was ever going to happen to me. And we were both absolutely devastated. You know, we'd already planned out what we're going to do with the nursery and worked out the due date, all these things. You know, I hadn't even got to 12 weeks, and we already had the baby's entire life planned out. So, you know... <laughs> Yeah. And did you go on to get pregnant again fairly quickly after yeah, that? Yeah, pretty quickly. It was maybe two or three months. It was very, we didn't want to wait. We just thought, you know what, let's crack on. And we were very lucky. We got pregnant again very quickly. Uh, and that was our oldest um, son, Indy. Mm. So could you talk us through your sort of pregnancy with Indy? Because that was not an easy pregnancy. Um, and I guess sort of physically but also did you have any anxieties from having had that earlier loss? Uh, I didn't particularly have any anxieties until things started going wrong with the pregnancy I kind of thought oh the other one was pre-12 weeks if I get to 12 weeks on this one it's all going to be fine Um, and actually it was fine up to 12 weeks there were no issues and then after 12 weeks I started having a lot of bleeding and I mean a lot of bleeding you know we would wake up and We'd literally look at the bed sheets and it looked like there'd been a massacre, you know, a lot of bleeding. And we had a couple of times we rushed into the hospital thinking that I'd miscarried. Um, and often it, it always seemed to be at night. So we'd rush in and we'd have to wait till the morning to have a scan. Um, and, all, you know, we'd be sitting there thinking, well, that's that. And then 
against all my instincts. <laughs> Every time we had a scan, there he'd be still bobbing around looking fine, which seemed impossible given how much I was bleeding. Um, and none of the um, NHS doctors could really give us any answers. And in the end, we went and had a private scan. And the guy immediately went, look, there's a little notch in your placenta there. That's what's causing the problem. You need to stay home. You need to not move around too much. Um, so for the whole of the second trimester, I, I was still working, but I was working from home. I didn't really leave the house very much. Um, and actually, that did that sorted it out. The bleeding settled down, and um, it, things looked fine from then on, really. Um, and then at the beginning of the third trimester, he said, well, go on, go back to work. It all looks fine. Went back to work for one day, <laughs> had a routine appointment at the hospital, and they went, oh, my goodness, your blood pressure is through the roof. Go back to bed. <laughs> So, yeah, it was all a bit a bit stressful. But actually, I never thought we wouldn't have a healthy baby at the end of that. Um, and um, and we did. You know, he was a very healthy baby. He was eight pounds, 12, um, got all the way through to term. And uh, I had to have a C-section because he was breached. But actually, it, it was all fine. Gosh, and it must have been a relief then to have him sort of safely in your arms after all absolutely, that. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> And I don't know about you, but I, I could not imagine being on like enforced bed rest for that long. I think I would go crazy know, being stuck in the it house. Was, it, it, it was a bit crazy. And also the, the fact that I was then released and thinking, oh, great. And then back I was again. You know, <laughs> Were your work supportive through that? They were amazing, actually. And it, I was um, working for Virgin at the time in their head office. And um, I hadn't been there very long. And they were amazing. They, let, they didn't bat an eyelid when I said I need to work from home it's fantastic and then you got pregnant again not too long after Indy was born with twins yeah which was obviously a massive surprise we don't have twins in our family at all so I went along for my 12-week scan uh, and actually for some I can't remember why but I had to go on my own my husband was away or something and I thought what they were going to tell me was that I'd lost the baby because this awful sonographer said to me she went I just want to look, I want to look you in the eye when I tell you this and of course with our history I thought oh there's no heartbeat you know so I was expecting the worst and actually then she went there's two and I was yeah I was don't abs- give me a heart attack woman and, <laughs> and, I, and I had it was really quite a sort of roller coaster of a moment because I thought she was going to tell me there was none and suddenly there was two and yeah, I just, it took me ages to actually get my head around it. And I rang my husband. He thought he, I was joking. <laughs> he, went, he went, ha ha, you think I'm going to believe we're going to have three babies under two. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and actually, that's one of the things I look back on. And it makes me feel sad that I, it's not that I didn't, I didn't want twins, but I was, you know, people would say congratulations. And I'd go, oh, you know, commiserations, more like I'm going to have three babies under two. And actually, I hate that I did that now. Um, because obviously had I had had a crystal ball I would never have said anything um, like that Um, but it still must be mixed emotions like when you find out how many twins because that I mean that is a it's a massive impact kind of logistically and and emotionally as well as oh my goodness I have these two babies in my belly you know am I at higher risk are they both going to survive how do I get them out at the end of the day I mean actually weirdly that was not really well, I, I'd never for one second considered that they would not both be okay. Not even when we found out they were identical, which is obviously much higher risk. I never for a single second entertained the idea that um, 
there, there would be a problem. I don't know why I didn't. Um, even, you know, my consultant said, oh, you'll be on the high risk list and all this because it's identical. I still was still in my charmed life bubble a bit. And I just didn't believe that there would ever be a serious problem. And that was right down the line. Even when things started going seriously pear-shaped, I still never thought we wouldn't be taking two babies home with us. And how did your pregnancy go with them? Because I've heard that pregnancies with twins can be a bit rough. Well, ironically, it was my best pregnancy right up until my um, waters went at 23 weeks. Right up to that point, I was i mean, I was really sick. Um, but in terms of like, I had no bleeding, my blood pressure was fine. You know, it was, so actually, it was my best pregnancy ever, actually. <laughs> ironically. Gosh, so you so your waters broke you say at 23 weeks can you talk us through what happened with that and the the emotions and everything we were having a um, Christmas drinks party and I started thinking halfway through something doesn't feel quite right but being (laughs) very British and polite I didn't say anything until the last guest had left and then I said to my husband I think we might have to go to the hospital and um and even actually, even then, I didn't really, I wasn't that worried. Um, I think because we had lots of difficulties with my pregnancy with Indy and it had turned out fine, I think I just thought, oh, well, you know, this is, pregnancies are like that and it turns out all right in the end. Um, but I was admitted to hospital and I had steroid injections um, to help their lungs develop, which is standard if they think you might deliver prematurely. Um, but actually nothing happened immediately. So in the end I got, so they gave me antibiotics and they sent me home over Christmas um which actually was horrible (laughs) yeah and what what did they tell you at that point in terms of like what happens now they kind of said well you know you haven't immediately gone into labor so you know you might be okay they did to be honest I think there's a lot it's not because twins are still kind of unusual and I think there's still a lot they don't know and actually people have been known to have their waters break early and actually go almost full term and uh, with no real serious effects Um, so I think they didn't really know what was going to happen that was the hardest thing because I went home and obviously my waters were still leaking so I could still feel that horrible feeling every time I stood up and um, which was really really stressful Um, and then I went into labour eventually on New Year's Eve gosh wow so that Christmas must have been pretty stressful as it is was it indeed first Christmas second Christmas um it was his first Christmas so it was was it his first Christmas no his second Christmas second Christmas sorry okay (laughs) um but yeah, it was stressful, especially because I, you know, I was around all of my family, and we were trying to pretend everything was fine, even though everyone knew it wasn't fine, and it was it was really horrid, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, what happened when you started going into labour? Um, it was in the middle of the well, sort of early evening, um, the night before. Yes, it was the night before New Year's Eve, because so it's so kind of in the, into the early hours of New Year's Eve, and um, I we rang a dear friend of mine who lived really near us at the time fortunately to come and take Indy in the middle of the night and we raced off to hospital um and um yeah I mean I I didn't really want to believe it was happening but it very much was happening quite quickly (laughs) and uh yeah and fortunately my consultant was on call then so eight o'clock in the morning um she delivered Rosie um and, and that's actually the whole way through my labor because I had her naturally rosy mm-hmm. um, 
they had two heartbeats the whole time. And it, weirdly, even then, even though I knew I was having the babies at 25 weeks, effectively, 25 plus three I was, I, I still thought it would be okay. I don't know why I thought it would be okay. I still really believed that everything would turn out all right in the end. Um, and so when Rosie was born and they said she wasn't breathing, I, I, I couldn't really compute. You know, I had a lot of gas and air as well, which probably didn't help. So I was a bit befuddled. <laughs> But, and you're still in late, like you're still. Yeah, absolutely. And all I could all I could say was, I remember saying over and over again, "Is it a boy or is it a girl?" Because we didn't know. Because whenever we'd had scans, we couldn't see because of the position they were in. So, and I was just going, "Is it a boy or is it a girl? Is it a boy or is it a girl?" Over and over, and no one said to me, "The baby's not okay." And and in the end, one nurse went, "She went, it's a girl." And I said, like, "Oh, it's a girl." And I, was, and I still didn't realise why no one was really talking to me and obviously they were working on Rosie trying to get her to breathe and and it took me ages to really realize what was happening and obviously it was worse for my husband because he was not drugged up so he was very aware of what was happening um and I still even when they told me she wasn't breathing I really believe that if I held her she would breathe I don't know, you know how people talk about it's amazing the mother's skin to skin. I honestly thought that by holding this baby, I could make her breathe. And it was, obviously it wasn't true, but I really believed that I could. It was really strange. And, you know, it is quite common because I've had quite a few friends who've had babies and they've come out and they have had like the cord wrapped around their neck or they yeah. haven't been breathing. And, you know, they have had to have some help initially. So it's not totally uncommon for that to happen, but at what point then did you did you realize that that she wasn't going to breathe um I, I it was when I heard this weird noise in the room and I, I think um, I've heard on some of the other podcasts that other people have said this and then I after a while I realized it was me and it was like this animal howl and, and I just yeah and it was me and I didn't realize it was me so I couldn't stop making it if that makes sense it was just yeah that sort of real animalistic squeal of pain it was yeah yeah I made one of those too it's it's a really it's it's such a bizarre experience that I don't think you can really understand it unless you've no. been through it it really is like you're, you're just completely detached and yeah yeah um so did they give you Rosie to hold at this point were you sort of you know with twins was was Isla being delivered at this point what was going um, on uh, Isla they they decided that I held her for a little bit and then they decided they had to get Isla out immediately and she wasn't coming. I, the labour had kind of stopped at that stage. So they decided to do an emergency C-section to get Isla out. And so obviously they took Rosie from me then because I had to go down into surgery. Um, so, yeah, but I mean, I was so... I, I can't even really remember being taken down. I can't really remember that bit where Isla was delivered because I was just... I don't know where I was really, in shock, I suppose. Yeah. And as you say, you're you're on the drugs and everything. And I think also your, you know, your body has probably it's put you in shock at yeah. that point because yeah. it's like, well, you can't you can't quite deal with this now. And and I guess Isla Isla was born, she was okay, but at twenty five plus three weeks, she must have been pretty tiny. They both Yeah, she they tiny. both weighed exactly the same actually. They're both one pound twelve ounces. Um and so Isla was okay in the sense that she wasn't dead. But she was, you know, but she wasn't breathing on her own. She wasn't, you know, she was only as okay as a kind of 25 weeker weighing one pound 12 could possibly be. Um, and she didn't even, she didn't even look 
like a baby, actually. I didn't see her straight away because I was on all the drugs. Uh, but when they wheeled me down to NICU to see her for the first time, I looked in this incubator and you know, I, I couldn't even recognize her as my baby because she looked like um, like a little, you know, you see those birds that have fallen out of their nest and they're bright red and spindly and that's, that's what Isla looked like. She didn't look like a baby even really. She was so tiny and so alien you know compared to what we think of as a as a baby um it was quite hard um because you feel detached from many way in NICU because they're in an incubator the nurses are, are amazing I mean they know what they're doing but you know I can remember the first time they suggested I change Isla's nappy and you have to put your hands in through the walls of the incubator and change. and she was so tiny I would literally no joke was thinking I might pull her leg off you know, because I, I didn't want to touch her. She was so fragile. And and they try and get you to um, to cuddle them as soon as possible because, obviously, that you need to bond with them and twin, um, and skin-to-skin contact is really good for them. But it was so stressful the first time I held her because immediately all the machines started beeping because her, her um, oxygen levels were dropping and everything all the all the alarms in the world seemed to be going off so it was it was not a wonderful moment the first time I held her I just wanted to put her back and give her back to the amazing nurse Linda who was the one that looked after her straight away and I thought you know what I almost felt like she was Linda's baby and not mine uh, not because Linda was anything other than absolutely wonderful every step of the way but because I didn't feel like I could do anything for her um, whereas Linda could do everything. And I felt like, you know, Linda's keeping her alive. Give her back to Linda. Um, it was It's a really strange thing. And the only thing that I felt for quite a few weeks that I was doing for her was um, expressing milk for her. Um, but, I mean, <laughs> that was a bit of a comedy anyway, really, because I had so much milk. I was like a kind of cow. Uh, just I was expressing like two litres a day. It was nuts how much milk I was producing, I suppose because it was twins and it wasn't my first pregnancy. And and Isla was having something ridiculous like 10 mil a day and I, and I was producing litres and litres of milk. Um, but it was, that, that was the one thing, actually. It just it really gave me quite sort of a bit of a kind of timetable to my day, you know, expressing every four hours or whatever. And I, actually it was the only thing that I felt that I was even doing for her because I couldn't do any of the normal things for her. It's, it's a really difficult thing having a baby in NICU. And what was her prognosis at that point? And particularly, I guess, just after she was born, because I mean, even though, you know, the, the sort of notional age for sort of viability in the UK, at least is 24 weeks. But, you know, there's, there are still a lot of babies who are born after that who who don't survive. And did you ever think at the back of your mind? Or did they ever try and prepare you for that? Or, or was her prognosis pretty good from the beginning no no, her prognosis was pretty poor really I mean she we knew that she I mean you could just see by looking at her that she was pretty much hanging by a thread Um, and for the first few weeks we often got taken to the quiet room and as no parent in NICU wants to go to the quiet room because that's the room where the doctors go look the next 12 hours are critical this could happen she's got another infection because they get a lot of infections when they're that little and they have to have a blood test and they have to pump them full of antibiotics and you know it it's you never know whether it's they have to start giving antibiotics before they're actually sure what's wrong and you know it's it's really difficult because they're so tiny and the things they manage to do I mean I'm so in awe of the staff we had her in um, St Thomas's 
uh, in London and I will be forever grateful to and I view them as magicians really because when you see a doctor or nurse putting a cannula in the in the vein of a baby who weighs one pound 12 ounces I mean it's it's magic it's it's magic I, I just don't know how they do it but we were very aware that we could lose her at any point. And actually, that was right the way, pretty much our whole stay in Niku and even into Skibu. You know, once she was in Skibu in special care rather than intensive care, we'd go off for lunch, we'd come back and we'd find them resuscitating her because she just got tired and stopped breathing. You know, it was that much of a roller coaster. And we, every night we had to, you could ring the nurses on the night shift and ask how they were. And we used to fight about who was going to make the call because we it was so awful because it was there were some nurses that always were really positive and there were other nurses that always made it sound really bad. And neither of us wanted to make that call each night because we didn't know what we were going to hear. And it was it was just it was absolutely hideous. And I usually I usually ask people about what their initial experience of grief was like. But for you, it must have been so much more complicated than that because not only have you lost Rosie you have Isla in NICU and Indy at home as well how did you survive those first few weeks and did you even have any time to grieve for Rosie? We actually I don't think we did grieve for Rosie until Isla was home Um, we certainly we didn't have a funeral for Rosie I mean we saw her the first couple of days when Isla was in NICU we saw we spent quite a lot of time with Rosie um so in that sense, we did. But obviously, all our energy was going into Isla, really. And it wasn't till obviously, we didn't plan Rosie's funeral until we knew that Isla wasn't going to die, to put it baldly, because I said to my husband, I said, I cannot have two funerals. I mean, you will know a baby's funeral is not something you can easily get through once. And to do it twice, I just, I said to him, we cannot. So we just delayed it until actually very close to Isla's christening actually because I I couldn't do it I didn't think I could sorry yeah no I think that had never even crossed my mind but I can understand that and I, I guess also if the worst had happened and Isla had died you would have wanted them to be together you know they'd been together for all their lives exactly that so we waited for that and I don't think and actually weirdly it was I really had a difficult time, probably after when Isla was about a year old, because all my undealt with grief then sort of came to the surface. And um, because we had to bottle up, we couldn't deal with everything all at once. So that kind of all our grief for Rosie kind of got put in a little box for later. Yeah. And I think and I think that happens even when, you know, you don't have another baby or other children to deal with. I think you, you definitely go through that period of shock. And, you know, your body was just trying to kind of cope with what was hitting you on a day to day basis. So how long was Isla in hospital for and how did it feel bringing her home? She was in hospital for about probably pretty much till her due date. They were due sort of middle of April. So she was born 31st of December. So she was she came home early April. So pretty much till her due date. And when she came home, I they, the, the nurses were like, she's going to get to go home soon. And I was thinking, oh, no. Yeah. Where, what, what about machines? I need those machines. I need a nurse. I <laughs> and she was on oxygen still as well. She came home on oxygen, uh, which involved a bit of <laughs> quite a lot of faffing around with uh, we had an oxygen machine. We had tubing draped all around the house, which was quite difficult with a toddler in the house. We had to have hooks all around <laughs> the top of the walls to keep the tubing out of his reach because he kept yanking her oxygen out, which was very stressful. <laughs> um, 
So it, it was, all sounds terrifying. It, well, do you know what the weird thing was? It was terrifying, but we did the same with Felix, our youngest. And actually, by that point, we were like, yeah, let's take him home. I know he's got a feeding tube. Yeah, he's weighing three pounds. Oh, he's quite sturdy. Like, <laughs> it actually became our normal, really. Yeah, once once you've been through something once, then you're yeah. kind of a bit more prepared to do it again. Yes. Yeah. So you've got Isla home. And then you, when did you get pregnant with Felix then? Uh, fairly within the year of um, them. <laughs> it all looked a bit indecent. I, I, I know from talking to friends that it's, who've been through baby loss that I think people go one of two ways. They either rush to get pregnant again or they just go never again or can't deal with that with for till quite a way down the line. But we were very much in the rushing category. I just couldn't, I couldn't live with the whole you know we did we thought we were going to have three children we I just couldn't I couldn't bear it I couldn't bear that gap and not because I thought that having another baby would ever replace Rosie I, I'm I know that would never that it's not possible I could have a hundred children and it wouldn't fill the rosy shaped gap but I just having had that vision of what our family was going to look like we we couldn't it was too, it was too painful to not have that um so and also we were very aware that actually it, it did help us a lot already having Indy in our lives I haven't really said much about him we had an amazing nanny at the time and she um helped look after him my sister lived with us for a bit at the time as well um but I I know that having Indy it made me get out of bed in the morning um even before Isla was home you know I had to get up I had to be normal I had to get dressed I had to take him to nursery or to the nanny or whatever he was doing um, and I just I kind of felt like another baby would at least be a distraction if if you know obviously it wouldn't be a replacement but I thought it would help us move on do you feel like you were maybe I don't know I don't want to put words in your mouth but kind of pushing your grief back again with that um possibly I I don't know I just Maybe, I don't know. I just felt like I needed it. I, I had this, even when Isla was in in um, NICU and obviously it was tiny, I just kept saying to Steve, I'm so broody, I need a baby. And I think it's because when you've got a baby in NICU, you don't have a baby in your arms. You, you The nurse has a baby in an incubator, but you actually don't have a baby because you can't, and you can't get all those sort of hormones those happy hormones from feeding your baby and hugging your baby and being with your baby I mean we, we pretty much sat with up next to Isla's incubator 12 hours a day but it's not the same and I think it was almost my body was like aching to have another baby I can't really it was like again like a kind of animal thing I think well I I guess you still did have empty arms and you know as you say and I can't I can't imagine how hard that must be to to see your child there and not you know, not be able to just pick up and hold them and, you know, rock them to sleep and all those things you you kind of dream of as a mother. So how was your pregnancy with Felix then? <laughs> this was your fourth pregnancy My overall. Fourth pregnancy. And actually, we were, again, quite naive. I thought, I'll get pregnant again. It'll be a single baby and there will be no issues. I don't know why I hadn't really thought back to what happened with Indy, to be honest. <laughs> Well, you, I, I think by now you think, well, I've had my fair share of issues. This one's going to go right. Yeah, and actually, I think there was an element of that. And um, but it was Felix's pregnancy was a disaster from the word go. Actually, it was. It, I had a lot of bleeding, a lot of weird 
things that the doctors didn't really know what was going on. Kind of they thought my waters might have gone and they weren't sure. And then they said, oh, it might be some sort of infection. And so there were a lot of things that they didn't really understand what was happening with it. Um, to the extent where at 17 weeks, it was suggested to me that I ought to have a termination just so that we could, while we were still in the, I think, as the consultant said, in the miscarriage stage rather than the stillborn stage. That wasn't my lovely consultant. That was a man who just was on call at that time. And I just, <laughs> but we went and had a scan and he was, he was so, he was playing with his toes. I remember it so vividly. And I just said to my husband, I can't do it. I literally cannot do it. We're just going to, we're in it now. We just have to, we have to see what happens and we'll deal with it if we have to. And I, I just couldn't bring myself to do it, especially having lost Rosie. I couldn't willingly let go of another baby. And I guess they didn't, they couldn't tell you what was wrong with him either by the sounds of it. So it wasn't, for example, like you got told that he had a life limiting condition or something, which, you know, if you carried on being pregnant with him would cause him more distress or more harm or, you know, they couldn't tell you anything other than you've got all these things going wrong and something something might be wrong with him. And to be fair, it did seem to be that it was probably wrong with me rather than him and that maybe I just couldn't carry babies well or whatever it was. They, it did, we had no real evidence that there was anything wrong with him, which is another reason why. So I can't, I can't do it. We have to see how far we can get. And also at that stage, I thought, do you know what? I'm good with Prem babies. I know what I'm doing. I could do it again, you know. <laughs> And how did you feel in terms of, I guess, anxiety and stuff during that pregnancy, particularly with sort of having this bad news constantly foisted upon you? I I, To start with, I was very disengaged up until about, up until I really started feeling him moving. I almost pretended that I wasn't pregnant to the extent that I could, given I was in hospital all the time. (laughs) But I just, I tried not to bond with him. And then I just suddenly thought, you know what, this could be the only time I have with this baby. And so after that, I thought, I'm just going to enjoy it for, for however long I have this. This has definitely been my last pregnancy. <laughs> I, you know, I'm just going to see if, if, if this is the only time I have with him, then I'm going to actually make it matter and, and enjoy it and love him. So where did you get up to in that pregnancy then? <laughs> well, I got up to, we, I, we, I got to about 27 weeks and I suddenly thought all the, all the weird things had stopped. Everything seemed to settle down. I didn't have any bleeding or discharge or anything weird going on. And I just thought, oh, wow. And the doctor said to me, and I, had, I went up to London and I'd had this um, fibronectin test, this is, we were live, um, which was at uh, the Evelina. And that tells you whether you're likely to go into premature labor. And I'd had that at about... I think I had it about 22 weeks and that gave me, I thought, okay. And it was negative. So it didn't look like I was going to go into premature labor. And I, and I, and that gave me a bit of confidence and everyone said, you know what, this is actually looking better now. This could be okay. So I relaxed and we went on holiday to deal with some lovely friends and we had a one day on the beach and I went into labor that evening, but I was so in denial. This was 28 weeks. I was so in denial that, it was only because my lovely friend said to me, Sarah, I really think we need to call an ambulance. I was going, no, no, I've just got this tummy ache. And she went, is it coming quite regularly? <laughs> and I was like, but I just didn't want to believe it. I said, I think it was the seatbelts digging in on the journey home. <laughs> I literally c- couldn't bear to go there again. I was so adamant I wasn't in labour. But she did call an ambulance and I was rushed to hospital. And they didn't have, I was rushed to Margate Hospital, actually. And they didn't have, uh, a heartbeat for him 
and they were scanning and scanning and, and they just decided to give me an emergency C-section. And it was awful because they didn't understand my background. I mean, I had my no- my notes, but no one had time to read them. And, and I was just literally going, I can't do this again. And I was screaming. And the, the consultant there went, do you mean another contraction you can't do again? I was like, no, another, you know, stillbirth. Another and, dead baby. Another <laughs> dead baby you know? And uh, it was it was pretty horrific. It was such a crash C-section. They didn't even have a chance to sign the consent or, you know, it was. And uh, and I thought I thought they were I was delivering another dead baby. Um, I really did. I just thought he was going to be stillborn. Um, and so when I came round, we laugh at this with my husband because obviously it was a general anesthetic. So I was really kind of dozy. And I'd come around, I'd go, how's the baby? And Steve would go, he's fine because he was fine. And then I'd go back to sleep and wake up and go, where's the baby and he'd go he's fine and we laugh at that at least it was good news because poor man if it had been bad he would have had to tell me (laughs) about 10 times (laughs) but um yeah so we were really lucky but it was it was pretty horrid because they don't have a NICU at Margate so I don't know why they took me there they should have taken me to Ashford probably so Felix got transferred to Ashford and I was really really ill after giving birth to him I'd bled so much and they couldn't stop it and it was it was really bad so I was in Margate and I couldn't be moved and Felix had to be in Ashford because they had a NICU and Margate didn't so for the first week I didn't see him and I had this little <laughs> slightly dog-eared photo that Steve had brought me from Ashford so my husband had been he had to drive to see me to Ashford to see Felix to my parents house which is where my younger Isla and Indy were at that time so every day he was doing this three <laughs> three point trip of uh, yeah it was a really difficult time and I and I didn't see him till he was a week old so that was really hard yeah that must have been incredibly hard not yeah I mean because I guess it's and again, you say this, again, it's one thing having a baby in NICU and, and being able to look at them in the incubator, but you didn't even have that. No. And it must have been, I mean, it must have been really difficult for your husband as well. How was he feeling during this time? I think it, I think it was really horrendous for him because he was so worried about, well, he was worried about Felix, obviously, but really worried about me because when I was having a C-section, I was under for ages. They had to call in a consultant from home to come in. So I was under for like hours um and he was really really worried about me I don't think I realized how ill I was um but obviously Steve could see it and it was really really difficult and obviously he was powerless to help anyone he couldn't help Felix he couldn't help me you know it was a really really awful time for him I think um but then they transferred me to Ashford and yeah and then eventually we got transferred back up to London which was lovely it was like going home all the nurses were like hi Sarah (laughs) Really nice well. to see you here yeah, again. Here you are again. Um, and, and actually, that it was difficult being in Ashford because it was very di- – obviously, it was like going to somewhere new. And, I, you know, I think, oh, they didn't do it like that in London when Isla was – you know, it was <laughs> it was a bit weird. So once we got back to um, St. Thomas's, it was it really was a bit like coming home because we were so institutionalised with Isla. We were you know, there for three months. And to see all the familiar – nurses and doctors was actually really it made me feel much more confident that he would be okay and actually Felix had a much smoother ride than Isla did I mean when he was born he was two pound 12 which to to normal people probably sounds horrific but for us we were like oh wow he's quite sturdy you know the nurses in Ashford were looking at us like we're insane but I was like oh he's quite sturdy and he did look I always say to Felix he looked like an angel like a fairy baby because he was 
he was tiny, but he did look like a baby. He had enough fat on him to actually look like just a really tiny baby rather than the sort of little bird that Isla had looked like. And he had a much easier ride. He didn't get loads of infections in the way that Isla did. He was stronger because he was bigger. He was breathing better. Um, yeah, it was, everything was easier with Felix, actually. And also it was familiar. We knew what we were doing. <laughs> and how long did you spend in hospital then after his birth? Um, I was in Margate for a week and then I was in Ashford. I think for I think it was probably about another week in Ashford and then I got discharged and then we were doing the journey from my parents' house to Ashford, which was a long journey. And so we were desperate to get home to London as well, where we were living, and get um, Felix transferred. But it was so difficult because you had to have – like they had – London um, St Thomas's had to have a cot and transport had to be available on the same day and lining that up took probably about two to three weeks to get you know it was really difficult and in the end I rang one of the uh, <laughs> the nurses at, at St Thomas's and said it's us please <laughs> can you help us and, then, and actually then after that we quite quickly got transferred um so uh, yeah, but it was it was very stressful. Just the logistics of it in the first few weeks of his life was so difficult. And also having you know Indy and Isla at home. Yeah. And did you get did you get a lot of support from sort of family during that time? Yeah, in my terms parents. Of helping you? Yeah, my parents were amazing. They looked after Indy and Isla for as long as we needed them to, and we stayed there till we all got transferred back up to London. Um, but I've had it's one of the amazing things when you go through these hideous life experiences is actually the things that people do for you. It's really humbling, actually. I had an amazing friend called Kate who, um, for the whole time that Isla was in hospital, she delivered hot meals to us two evenings a week, just the whole time. And she told me what days she was going to do it, and she did it without fail. And just if we weren't there, she left it on the doorstep. And I have to say, I mean, she stopped us starving basically because we had no time for cooking, no inclination to cook. You know, we were living on, I was living on like family sized chocolate bars, you know. Um, and it was things like that, that sort of consistent, what can I actually practically do to help you? Um, and of course, we had the other, I mean, I, we, I always laugh with um, my friends that have been through this in this about the people that you kind of expect to be amazing sometimes let you down and then people that you're not expecting like people that you hardly know can suddenly write you a beautiful letter or you know it's it's always really surprising um I've had quite a big cull of friends actually since uh we <laughs> since Rosie died because some people were rubbish and sort of actively avoided us and weren't there when I you know this was obviously the worst thing that's ever happened to us and I kind of take the view that if you were my friend and you weren't there then actually you weren't really my friend and um so yeah, so uh, whereas other people, I will literally will have a place in my heart forever because they were there for us when we really, really needed them. Yeah, and I think just again to go back a bit to your, I guess your kind of grief journey and kind of processing or managing some of that grief. And you must have had, I mean, you must have had trauma from you know all your pregnancy experiences and and you know Felix's birth and your children being in NICU and all of that. How did you, how have you kind of managed all of that over the years while looking after the children? When did it kind of really hit you hard, I guess? And how did you get through that? I don't, I think it's a real sort of, it's a real error to say that grief is this kind of linear 
thing. I think people think it will just gradually gets better. Um, but I think it's it's not like that. It's a roller coaster. You know, you don't go through these measured stages of grief. In you know, some you know, I've had times when I thought, oh, how will I ever get through that? And actually, it's been fine. Like some of the first anniversaries, I was like, how will I ever get through my first mother's day or the twins first birthday and and actually sometimes it's not been as bad as I thought and then there've been other things where I wasn't expecting to be hit so hard where I you know where things have absolutely blindsided me you know like even now if I sometimes I'm I'm better around twins now than I was (laughs) but even now now and again if I see identical twin girls it you know and then we're 12 years on now Isla's 12 now um it can still absolutely knock me for six and I and I can be an absolute wreck for no for no real reason it just sometimes it hits me and other times I can cope with it and I think that's what grief is like isn't it you know you you manage it up to a point and then but it's still there um and it always will be there and I think that's as it should be really you know I'd, I'd feel bad if I ever stopped grieving for her Back in episode two I spoke to Ian who also lost one of his twin daughters and he mentioned a bit about the joys and sorrows of losing a twin and could you perhaps talk a bit about that from your own experience I think it's a really it's it's I think losing a twin is quite different to losing a single baby because and I think actually in some ways it's better in some ways it's worse (laughs) because one of the joys for me because they're identical I know what Rosie would look like and that's kind of that's quite mind-blowing actually you know, I still got a bit of a thing where I can't really look at Isla if she's looking in a mirror. <laughs> but it, that's an amazing thing for me. Um, and yet you do, when you lose a twin, you can't, so you have, you've got a baby, you have got to take one of your babies home, which, you know, clearly that's a massive blessing. I didn't lose both my twins. I got to take one home. Um, but also you feel like you've been kicked out of this kind of exclusive club, you know, the whole twin thing people are so fascinated by twins particularly identical twins it's a really special thing and to to think you're going to be part of that cool gang is really exciting that's one of the exciting things about being a twin thing oh my gosh this is amazing these babies started as one cell I wonder if they'll be telepathic I wonder if they'll be able to you know what will they be able to do all the great jokes they'll be able to play on people you know switching identity all this cool stuff that you think you're going to be a part of and I find it quite hard that people don't know that Isla was a twin you know, because she, we've moved back down to Kent now from London and um, a lot of people, a lot of my friends here and in schools, they don't actually know all that history. Sometimes I tell people, but I don't always, and I obviously leave it to Isla whether she wants to tell people. Um, so it, it, it is like being kicked out of a club a bit. Uh, and also people do have a tendency to say, oh, well, at least you've got Isla. Uh, you know like and I and I and in my worst days I'm tempted to go well which one of your kids would you do without because it's it's no one says that in relation to any other loss if you lose your mother no one goes oh at least you've still got your father or you know if you lose a husband no one goes oh you could get another one you know I it's it's quite a weird thing Um, and actually people do it with loss of a single baby as well you know oh you can have another one but babies aren't interchangeable we all know that if we think, if we stop and think about it, we we know that and we should recognise that. Um, so when people say to me, "Oh, at least you've still got Isla," I thought, it, "Yes, I'm I'm grateful. Of course, I'm grateful that she survived." But it doesn't take away an inch of the pain of losing Rosie. It really doesn't. There's a brilliant um, 
kind of a, a short kind of cartoon clip which a friend shared with me a while ago um i'll see if i can find it online to put in the show notes but it's the difference between sympathy and empathy and there is no room for at least yes. in empathy absolutely absolutely and the things people i mean the things that people say have yeah, <laughs> i always think we ought to write a book about sort of collective things that people should have should not have said but thought it was fine to come right out with and I get it a bit because people don't know what we've got. When you lose a baby, people don't have any of those normal cliches to fall back on. They can't say, oh, at least they had a good life. At least you've got your memories. They don't know what to say. And sometimes they do come out with the worst things. I mean, I had a consultant at the hospital that said to me when I was sitting by Isla's incubator, one day you'll look back on this and laugh. <laughs> you know, you just think, and the nurse is all paled. <laughs> and I just think, what? In what world would I ever look back and laugh about this? I, it's, I think people don't know what to do, I think. No, and I, th- I think the, the flip side of that is that people just don't say anything because they're too scared. Yeah. And, you know, I had a friend admit to me recently that she didn't know how to approach me and talk to me about Sky. And she's like, well, what do I say to you? I was like, well, I, I don't really know. I'm happy talking about her. But, you know, so the, there's that kind of flip side as well. Is that Either people kind of want to say something and perhaps end up saying the wrong thing or they're too scared to say the wrong thing and then don't say anything yeah. at all, which, yeah. yeah. And I it's mean, a panic thing, I think. I mean, we had some neighbours that we literally saw hide behind their car when they saw us coming down the street. Hide very badly, I might point out, because obviously we can see them. But we were just like, what are they doing? And then we realised they were actually hiding from us because they didn't know what to say. And I I'd think, have been so tempted. Were you not tempted to just go off and go, hi there, how are you guys doing? <laughs> and we found it quite hurt. I mean, we had things like, you know, people that had babies didn't tell us they'd had their baby, uh, you know. And we felt quite isolated for a long time. Um, not by everyone, but we, there were a lot of people that I get. And I, I understand that thought process. They, they didn't want to tell us that they had had a baby when they knew that one of ours had died. But we felt really isolated by a lot of people. You know, lots of people did avoid us, um, and for for whatever reason, um, that's quite a hard thing to deal with when you're already dealing with your grief. I think. Yeah, I remember getting quite annoyed because my husband didn't tell me that his cousin was pregnant for weeks that they were expecting a baby until I think I saw it on Facebook or something and they finally announced it. And he was like, oh, yeah, I didn't want to tell you because it would upset you. And I was like, yeah, but not telling me upsets me as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So how did you approach talking to your children about Rosie? Did you mention her when they were very young because obviously they were obviously tiny when it happened or wait until they got older we always talked about her straight away um from from the minute it happened we would talk about it um especially with Isla she grew up knowing that she had a twin sister and and actually we made some mistakes along the way with Isla I can see that (laughs) because the thing I think about with talking to children is you have to be very direct and honest it these these sort of sugarcoating things that we say I think often can really confuse children because I did say to Isla once that um, Rosie was born sleeping and the angels took her away and there was a stage when she was about five or six when she wouldn't go to sleep because she was worried the angels would come for her (laughs) and obviously that was not our intention but we uh, from that point on I've been much kind of more I suppose clinical about it in a way and really just honest and direct about it because I think Otherwise, children can get really confused. Um, but it's something they've all grown up knowing that they have a sister who's in heaven. And when they, I've really tried to 
teach them actually that yes it was really sad but actually all families are different and this is just part of the patchwork of our family and this is how our family is and that you know one of my I think it was Felix said to me the other day oh mummy you're so unlucky and it really it quite shocked me because I actually don't think of myself as unlucky in fact the fact that I've managed to walk away from this whole shit show with three healthy children is actually I, I feel like one of the luckiest people alive because I'm not very good at carrying babies <laughs> clearly and the fact that I have managed to produce these three amazing children I, I feel very very lucky I don't feel unlucky in any way I, I feel sad obviously and I would rather we hadn't lost a baby but actually I, I don't even really wish things were different because obviously if I'd had three children under two we would not have rushed out and got pregnant with Felix <laughs> and I wouldn't have him and Actually, I find it very hard to wish things different because I feel very lucky with the life that I have. And and also, I, losing Rosie has really changed me. And I think really changed me for the better, actually. I think I'm a much better mother than I would have been. Much better. I was before when we had just Indy. I was a bit of a kind of, <laughs> I suppose, London mum in the sense that, you know, I had the poor boy at ballet classes because I'd read that it would be really good for him later in life. Not because he enjoyed them. He hated them. He used to sit there in the middle of picking his nose and hating every minute. But I just had read that it was really good for boys to do ballet. So I was going to make him do ballet. And I had baby Einstein videos and flashcards. And, and do you know what? Now, all I want from my kids is they do, all they have to do to make me happy is breathe. It's literally as simple as that. They just have to breathe and be who they want to be. And I've got no, I don't care about exam results. I don't care, you know, what they do in life. I just need them to breathe. And it's so simple for me now and when I hear people stressing about you know what schools their kids are going to go to and all this stuff I actually I have I've been gifted with this amazing perspective I just all I care about is that they're alive that they're breathing and they're here you know it's that's all they have to do to make me happy and that's actually a massive gift that Rosie has given us because I would have been a very different mother if it wasn't for losing her I, I know that and I can see how what the kind of mother I would have been and I'm I'm glad that I'm not that mother because they have this I have this such unconditional love which I know everyone feels for their children but I just feel like they don't need to make me proud they don't need to do anything in particular they just need to they just need to be here really that's actually making me quite emotional (laughs) no I think I think that's really beautiful and I think you know we talk a lot about legacy on this show and we've talked about you know different legacies and you know parents who've raised thousands of pounds or started a charity and also people who remember their children in different ways but I think that the greatest legacy that you know anyone can give you is to make you a better person and it sounds like Rosie has done that for you. I hope so I think I believe that I really do believe that yeah. Fantastic. Well, we are about out of time. Thank you so much for sharing your story and your roller coaster ride through pregnancy and motherhood. Um, and thank you again for coming on the podcast, Sarah. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Footprints on Our Hearts. Please help me break the silence around baby loss by sharing the podcast with your friends and leaving a review on iTunes. You can follow me on Instagram at Footprints on Our Hearts and Twitter at Sky's Footprints. For detailed show notes and to support the podcast and help me raise money for Tommies, please visit our website, footprintsonourhearts.com. <laughs>